Just to let you know, this episode contains references to drug use and overdose. It's something to consider before you listen. No, the only way out is getting to a place where you, you can feel it, and that's with taking copious amounts of drugs. If it wasn't for safe injection sites, I wouldn't be alive today, that's, that's for sure, because I wouldn't have been able to stay alive long enough to hit bottom, um, to have a moment of clarity myself where I was able to say that I don't want to do this anymore. It is a crisis, and when there's a crisis, we stand forward and we do what needs to be done. That's what the Downtown Eastside Women's Centre stands for. Welcome back to The Ferret Investigates The Health Gap, a three-part special podcast from The Ferret Media Co-op and Greater Govanhill Magazine. I'm Summer Jamal, a reporter for Greater Govanhill Magazine. And I'm Karen Goodwin, co-editor of The Ferret. And over these next three episodes, we're asking you to come on a journey with us as we look at how Scotland can try to close the health gap. That means people who live in our most well-off communities will live much longer, healthier lives than those in the most deprived. Reality is that that gap isn't closing at the moment. In fact, it's getting bigger. So in these podcasts, we're looking at three issues that are driving that. That's something we've been looking at as part of our year-long project called Mind the Health Gap. We'll be hearing from people that are local to our community newsroom in Glasgow's Govan Hill about how these issues affect them. But we've also been travelling across Scotland and the UK and further afield to speak to people about what works and hopefully provide some inspiration of what more we can do to change things for the better. Last week, we explored how we can improve infant and child health and visited a project in London's Brick Lane. The project was created with women from South Asian backgrounds to support them to feed their babies better and avoid obesity and other health problems. And this week, we're looking at another major factor leading to health inequalities, drug-related deaths. We've been visiting projects in Glasgow and Vancouver and hearing that when people feel like they really matter and they're not judged for their drug use, that can make a massive difference. The latest number of people dying due to drug overdose were out in August 2023 and they seem to be coming gradually down. But they're still so high. 1,051 people died in 2022. That's almost three people a day. And you're 16 times more likely to die of a drug overdose if you live in a deprived community than if you live in a wealthy one. This is still a public health emergency that's killed almost 6,000 people in five years. And with the rise of synthetic opioids across the UK, which are way stronger than drugs like heroin, for example, we've got to get to grips with how to keep people safe. So I went to Simon Community's We See You project, which aims to support people who are using drugs and living in Glasgow's city centre. Hi, my name's Jim Thompson. I'm the coordinator of the WCU project at Simon Community Scotland. The people that I work with are, are excluded from the rest of society. You know, they're, they're farmed into the town, into the, the city centre, you know, in a square mile we've got loads and loads of active drug users, you know what I mean, who receive very little support. And the support that that the day receive is not appropriate. No, it, it just doesn't meet their needs. No, I mean, no, they're nowhere that they can come and sit and and be safe other than here. My name is Don Dockery. We're in the Simon Community Hub in Glasgow for the VCU group. 
så gav det stik, kan man en så chef på så people are using drugs in John Bertrand Kiotik in just to give my chef for his refuse to come. I started off years ago, I took hair on for a couple of years, but I was stuck on methadone for 30. Uh, I started by Vidal three and a half months ago. When I was only by Vidal after the methadone, I swapped for cocaine and volume. And at one point I was taking a hundred watt street, street benzos a day and I know how dangerous you are, but it doesn't really matter, you don't care. At the end of the day, as long as you try and think, keep yourself as safe as you can. A lot of people don't care, but I did try and keep as safe as I can, but with cocaine, uh, I was taking crack and I was taking in pipes and when you do that, when you, as soon as you finish that bit, you just can't stop spending your money on it until it's gone. I've lost a lot of power through overdose and family. People are scared, you know what I mean? No, where we like it or no? No, having, having yet a friend die with a drug-related death is, is traumatising, to say the least, you know what I mean? And knowing that you could possibly be next is is something that, that you want to escape, that feeling in your head. So you go and use drugs, you no, know, and put yourself at risk a drug-related death, and you've got no other avenue to, to kind of access. You know what I mean, no, we've got a, a 16-bed drug and uh, alcohol unit in Glasgow City Centre, and I know we've got a stabilisation unit, and we're kind of... But we've got too many people waiting to use these services. No, we need more. And no, more of everything. Just some of the needs are just, no, like, somebody to talk to. As I say, they're, they're accommodated in hotels and they've no support staff in them. No, so no, they're not allowed anybody in their room. So they're sitting in a room alone and I know what it's feel, it feels like. Um, no, I've done it. No, I mean, no, I've done it and, and they're nothing worse than being alone in your own head when you've got all that stuff that you've carried with you for your whole life. No, I mean, and no, like the only way out is is getting to a place where you, you can't feel it and, and that's we taking copious amounts of drugs. One way or another, you're, you're putting yourself at risk of, of death. And sometimes, I, I know, remember personally, m myself, and that was all right, you know what I mean? No, that was kind of, that would have got me away from everything, you know what I mean? No, for what, but I kind of believed was just... Misery, no, I mean, no, I was suffering, no, the drugs stopped working for me, no, at, at the end, and, and it didn't matter how much I took, I still felt a pain that was never dulled, no, I mean, no, and I see the people that I work with today, and, and I see that, no, I see myself in them, no, I mean, so that's what hurts me. First loss is with my brother, no, two years ago now. You see, you can't get clean for anybody, but that's what I started doing it for, and it's been one. But I keep on slitting every so often, and it's the money is the worst thing for me. I, you come in here, and you've got staff to look after you, and if you see people under influence and starting to get overdoses or whatever, they'll get staff to look after them. Uh, People like myself that's done our courses and I look after them. And it's just constant advice. And it's positive advice in here all the time. 
it was way just people coming round me, you know what I mean, and, and treating me as a person, and no, just a, a problem, you know what I mean. And that's what we are doing at the BCU project. You no, know, we treat people, we meet them where they're at, and we, we value them. You no, know, we, we let them know that they are valued, they mean, to, they mean more than the numbers to us, you know what I mean. So, projects like We See You are one response that seems to be working. But what else is happening? What's been the Scottish Government response? This has been a big bone of contention for many campaigners who would say not enough. Politicians say they're committed to improving treatment and launched a set of standards that alcohol and drug partnerships, the statutory bodies providing medically assisted treatment, have to uphold. But two years later, most of those standards have not been fully implemented. There's also been an increase in the number of rehab bed spaces. But some would say that people are still not getting access and have called for people to have the right to whatever treatment they want, including rehab, enshrined in law. Meanwhile, Scotland has piloted heroin-assisted treatment, which we'll hear more about later. And there are plans to launch a drug checking service so people would be able to find out what's in the drugs they're consuming. They also asked again for permission to open a safer drug consumption space. That's where people can bring their own drugs and take them in a clean space with clean equipment. Staff are trained to resuscitate users with oxygen and naloxone if necessary. In 2020, campaigner Peter Craghant set up a safer injecting van here in Scotland, even though it wasn't legal. But it's no longer operational. But these type of spaces are both legal and common in several other countries, like Canada. There, the overdose rates are really high, mostly due to fentanyl, that's a cheap-to-make synthetic opioid that flooded the market in 2016. I was recently in Vancouver, where Insight, North America's first safer consumption space, opened 20 years ago. The city now has at least five, including the Overdose Prevention Society. It was set up illegally to prevent people overdosing and later got permission to operate officially. Let's hear what it's all about from Trey Helton, manager and former user of the Overdose Prevention Society, or OPS, as he calls it. Ops looks very much like, I would say like a country bar, like a North American kind of like dive bar, except it's set up differently. Instead of like drinking tables, there's clean, sterile using tables. Side of the wall, there's a chill zone, which has leather couches because they're easier to get rid of bed bugs. Um, There's wooden picnic benches, um, like you'd find in a park for people to hang out in. There's... TVs playing endless B-movies and horror films. There's colorful, tasteful graffiti murals everywhere done by local graffiti artists. I've heard other people describe it as like walking into a comic book, you bring your own product. Like a dive bar that you would go into, they serve alcohol. This is like you walk in and you have to have the product on you, which you would purchase somewhere off-site. In an ideal world, there'd be a place to get safe supply where people would know what they're buying. Unfortunately, due to the nature of the beast, it's you're buying off a supplier off the street or someone that you know, and hopefully they're telling you what is actually in their product and that's actually in their product, so. Ops is like the place where all the people that are banned in the neighborhood go. So we get the most troublesome and problematic people coming to Ops. I was doing a naloxone training there, and after the naloxone training was over, a woman stayed behind and she said, uh, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for having ops. She's like, my brother is back on the reserve. Um, he's four months off the dope. And um, she's like, I don't know how to say this, but like, he's a very difficult person. 
and if it wasn't for you guys he wouldn't have had a safe place to go because no one else wanted to deal with them so she's like from the bottom of my heart thank you at any given time we employ up to 30 peer staff um, who are all current drug users within the community the only requirement for employment at ops is you have to be a current drug user and you have to live or be based within the downtown east side so a lot of our staff members actually do like live in the alley they live in a tent they come in and they fish out jobs when they come to work with us we get them to come to our staff meetings which are on monday mornings from 10 a.m to 11 a.m where we train them how to use naloxone we train them how to run oxygen tanks we train them how to spot overdoses uh, we train them how to run a defibrillator. Once they've come to two staff meetings in a row, they can start a paid training shift. It's considered an honorarium. One of our staff members is a sex trade worker. She works near Oppenheimer Park. She's been able to work with us and she's um, slowly weaned away from that lifestyle. Another staff member that works with us is BC's most prolific cat burglar. And we've effectively given him employment to where he doesn't have to do that kind of stuff anymore and he just thanks us every day for it there are people who don't ever want to get off the street drugs they just want a little bit more security and stability in their life um, but they have no intention of quitting so like big things that can make changes are housing a safe place where someone can go and lock their door and, and sleep sometimes we see people go to detox even if it's just for a break i always encourage people to go it doesn't have to be like long term Success could be going to detox for three days and just um, getting three consistent meals in and, and a bed space where they can rest. Access to treatment and detox can be very slow. Sometimes it's like a two-week wait. One of the like, most frustrating things is like, like I'm the guy on the street and sometimes someone will have like a moment of clarity where they say they want to talk to me privately in the office. We go to the office and they say, you know, like, Trey, I'm, I'm really feeling done. I really need a break. I really, I really want to stop this. Can I? Can you help me go to detox? And like that window is like so tiny, and it's like explaining to them that like you have to call the number. They're gonna want you to get on some sort of opiate replacement program. You're gonna to have to go to the walk-in clinic. You're gonna to have to get a methadone script. Then you're gonna to have to wait in queue. They're gonna call you back when they have a space, or they're gonna give you an intake bed date two weeks from now. Now the reality of that is obviously two weeks go by and they have a change of heart. Whereas I have to like tell them how to manipulate the healthcare system. That's a really good question. How would you create a no barrier service? First of all, it's run by drug users. So people I think as a drug user would feel more comfortable around drug users. There's less stigma, less feeling of judgment. So having peers around is super important. Is it enabling? People are gonna do what they're gonna do. That's the bottom line. And like creating a place for them to hang out is the bare minimum that we could do for them. Um, like a safe place where they don't feel stigmatized. It's like uh, when I was in addiction myself, there was some people who never really judged me. They just understood that that's where I was currently at, at that point in my life. And that was the path that I was choosing. And of course they were hoping that I would do something more healthy but they just let me walk the path until hopefully I found a way out. If it wasn't for safe injection sites, I wouldn't be alive today, that's, that's for sure, because I wouldn't have been able to stay alive long enough to hit bottom, um, to have a moment of clarity myself where I was able to say that I don't wanna do this anymore.
and then I became very determined to turn my life around. That was Trey Hilton from the Overdose Prevention Society in Vancouver. Something like that might be quite challenging for us to think about here in Scotland, right? And there's been some pushback in Canada as well. Harm reduction measures like this are certainly not popular with Conservative politicians in Canada just now, who actually claim this type of approach is fueling deaths, not saving them. But evidence would suggest that's just not right. San Francisco recently closed its linkage centre in Tenderloin, which is the area at the heart of the drug death crisis, because the mayor said its harm reduction-focused approach was killing people with compassion. Deaths have risen by 33% since. So I guess one of the things that also interests me is what is fueling this crisis in the first place. When I was in Vancouver, I also heard about the roots this crisis has in colonialism and racism, and I really wanted to understand more about that. So on Indigenous Peoples Day, I went along to the downtown Eastside Women's Centre to find out more. At Vancouver's downtown Eastside Women's Centre, celebrations for Indigenous Peoples Day are in full swing. This is one of North America's richest cities, bristling with new developments, real estate and property developers. But the downtown east side tells a different story. This is where the majority of the city's single-room occupancies, or SROs, homeless hotels and shelters, can be found. The Women's Centre sits just off East Hastings, where the sidewalk spills over with homeless and insecurely housed people, camped out amidst their belongings. As you walk down the street, there are people smoking crack or injecting fentanyl, a synthetic opioid that contaminates Canada's drug supply in dangerous quantities. Everywhere you look, there are people in crisis. Initial data from British Columbia's coroner's service suggests 2,272 people died last year of drug overdoses. That's more than six people a day across a state that's not much smaller than Scotland. And disproportionately represented amongst those who died are Indigenous or First Nations women. Women like those here today. Death rates for them were 8.8 times higher than for the general population last year. I'm here at the centre to find out more, both about the problem and the responses communities are finding to help keep more women safe from harm. My name is Candy Tlaiji. Uh, I work at the Downtown Eastside Women's Centre as the manager of programs. We've been around uh, since 1978. Uh, we exist to support women and children of the Downtown Eastside community. Uh, that includes any folks that identify as women. Our mandate is to provide basic necessities. Simple as it sounds, but it goes a long way, right? From three hot meals a day, uh, access to showers, bathrooms, clothing room, toiletries, um, access to different services such as housing, uh, victim service support workers, uh, mental health advocates. This is a very multicultural space, but Indigenous women make up a large proportion of the community here. Candy tells me the level of need they're experiencing is off the scale, with many women finding themselves street homeless. In the downtown east side, there is a sense of community. A lot of people here know and look out for each other. But for women on the streets, especially those involved in sex work, it can be really dangerous too. Women, particularly Indigenous women, go missing here. Some have been murdered. 
The downtown Eastside Women's Centre has researched the issue. Out of all the women surveyed, about 48% of them um, had experienced um, sexual violence in the past two years. It's just unbelievable. You just cannot wrap your, your head around it. We're seeing that uh, drugs out there uh, on the streets, they're laced and contaminated with a whole lot of things that result in loss of lives that shouldn't be happening at all. During the pandemic restrictions of 2020, the number of deaths increased 74% in a year. The deaths and the loss keep on growing. For many women here, this new grief sits on top of old wounds. The Indigenous communities have suffered deep and intergenerational trauma due to colonisation. Here today are survivors of the so-called 60s scoop, which saw child welfare authorities remove Indigenous children from their birth families and place them in foster homes from which they would be adopted by white families. Others were sent to residential schools, where they were given new names and speaking their native language was forbidden. The last residential school closed in 1996, but trauma is carried down through the generations, says the centre's mental health advocate, Tanya Green, who herself was brought up by residential school survivors. She's also here at today's event. I was also somebody who comes from a broken home. Uh, residential school survivors raised me, and my aunt was addicted to, to some heavy drugs and she lived down here and so I wanted to try and help make a difference to my, like my people because we need more out there. She says the drug death crisis for Indigenous women is often linked to the lack of housing options, particularly for women escaping abuse. The team at the Downtown Eastside Women's Centre are there to listen and to help women access their rights. They need somebody to speak up for them. Um, some just come in because they just want to talk. And, you know, talk through their triggers, their traumas. And, you know, sometimes I just, I'm just there to listen. And, you know, they just need to be validated and heard. It's like slowly I'm getting to, to know the women. You know, a lady had come up to me and said, thank you. You know, she was getting bullied by her landlord. And... She's like, do you remember me? And it was so rewarding to hear that, you know, she ended up winning her arbitration. She ended up, you know, being able to stand up for herself and understand her rights. But there's other knowledge that Tanya, who herself escaped an abusive relationship after 20 years, wants to pass on. She says reconnecting with her culture has been a critical part of her ability to find her own voice and tap into her inner strength. She now uses traditional Indigenous practices like smudging, burning sweetgrass and sage to help her deal with the pain of the past and better understand her future. A few years ago, the centre produced a report, Red Woman Rising, which detailed 200 recommendations about how to improve women's lives based on women's own sometimes harrowing testimonies. It called on authorities to end the displacement of Indigenous women from the land, to keep families together in the downtown east side, to end the violence women are facing, the criminalisation by police in the justice system, to provide affordable housing and economic stability. Many of the recommendations it made for others have seen little progress. But meanwhile they keep on working on building women up, helping them reconnect with where they come from.
Each week, women can take part in regalia making, learn beading, sit with the grandmother's circle or join powwows to help them access a culture that was often previously denied to them. Performing a grass dance at today's celebrations, Larissa Healy has also experienced the healing power of that reconnection. They're a two-spirit, a term used by some indigenous North Americans to describe native people who fulfill a traditional third gender ceremonial and social role in their communities. Winnipeg, Manitoba. Anishinaabe Treaty 1. My colonial name is Larissa Healy. My spirit name, I said in my language, which is Anishinaabek, Little Dancing Bear. Larissa ended up on the streets of the downtown east side as a teenager, escaping their life with their adopted family. They always instinctively knew they were holding on to past trauma, but it wasn't until last year that Larissa found out via a letter from Canadian authorities that they had been taken from their birth family as a baby as part of a 60 scoop operation. This place saved my life. Um, I was involved in a lot of really heavy stuff back, back in the day and one of my elders came and saw me on the street and said, do you want something to eat? And I finally said yes. And she pointed me to the downtown Eastside Women's Centre, which was a small little slot in the wall just up the street. And then they became this wonderful facility that it is now. Larissa now volunteers at the centre's clothing store and parts of their beautiful regalia, the traditional ceremonial clothing they're wearing, was recycled from material found there. It's not just at the Women's Centre that reconnecting the community with its Indigenous culture is being used to promote a sense of well-being. I'm Clint and we're at the building of Van Du at 380 East Hastings in Vancouver. I work as the knowledge keeper slash elder. I do ceremonies such as um, healing circles, um, talking circles, uh, drumming. I teach uh, traditional crafts, beading, moxa making, drum tying. The Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, or VANDU as it's known here, advocates for the rights of people using drugs. Campaigning by this group helped secure North America's first safer injecting site, and they're still instrumental in a wide range of campaigns, from the decriminalisation of drugs to the call for adequate housing and safer supply programmes. They have their own safer consumption space and provide everything from clean needles to naloxone kits and organise supportive meetings for their members and sister organisation, the Western Aboriginal Harm Reduction Centre, also runs traditional craft workshops from this space. So um, three times a week I, I come down here and I set up a traditional native beading class where it's a safe, quiet, welcoming environment where people can sit down and learn how to bead, uh, just be out of the race, you know, for a couple hours at a time. They get off the street and away from the the push, the pull. I came through the 60s scoop and I was taken from my home environment and moved uh, quite a distance away to a city, put in a group home run by white people with no other natives in the place. It was, you come in and be a, try and be a white man, you know, be a failed white man here and we'll drag you along with us. It sucked. His life has taken him on many twists and turns and like a disproportionate number of indigenous men, he spent time in prison. 
Now he too is looking to help people through sharing his culture. What I try to do is I have a, a big drum. It's a teaching, healing drum. So I invite everybody to sit out and drum. So I'll go down the street and uh, it calls to people. It has a lot of power. The tools that we use for healing ourselves have the power to uh, help other people on their way too. Last fall when I had the drum down there was uh, Columbian Hastings over here and we were on the street and drumming away and there was people walk past and as they walk past I invite them to sit down and drum. One lady was really drunk, like just, and she's staggering around. She said, come and sit on drums. I can't sit on a drum. She goes, I'm hammered. I says, come and sit on a drum. So she come, I give her a stick and it's like, just like she became clear just for a second there and she looked at me and she goes, I haven't done this since I was eight years old with my father. She kind of shyly looked at me and she said, I have a song. I said, well, sing it. So she starts drumming. She sang her song, you know, and for that little while, there she was, eight years old again with her dad. And I thought, this is why I come here, you know, like for that little while, she got to feel what it's like to be safe. And, you know, it was, uh, it was pretty powerful. <laughs> Sticks in my memory. So. Back at the downtown Eastside Women's Centre, Candy agrees there's huge power in cultural reconnection. But she says structural change is also needed to ensure women get justice, from ensuring a safer supply of drugs are made available, to proper housing and an end to the shocking levels of abuse and violence she sees women suffer daily. And she is determined that change will come. It is a crisis and when there's a crisis, we stand forward and we do what needs to be done. That's what the Downtown Eastside Women's Centre stands for. Listening to those stories from Vancouver's downtown east side were our guests for this episode, Claire Longmuir and Andy McCauley. Claire is the Head of Policy and Practice for Harm Reduction at Simon Community Scotland and she's been working on plans to launch a women's centre later this year. And Andy is a professor in public health at Glasgow's Caledonian University who specialises in injecting drug use and associated harms. He's evaluated projects like Glasgow's Safer Injecting Van and the Heroin Assisted Treatment Pilot where the city's most vulnerable drug users are given medical-grade heroin as part of a supervised programme. Claire, you've both been listening to the episode so far. Can I ask you, first of all, for just your reaction to that quite harrowing testimony that we heard there from the We See You project? Yeah, I think hearing from Owen and from Jim just highlights that this is people and these are people's lives and the challenge and the scale of the challenge that we face. Like we often see the yearly figures, don't we? And we are, they're always really difficult and upsetting, but it comes down to human beings. And, and what we see in delivering We See You is that there's lots of services that can provide support that is quite clinically led. You know, so if you live in city centres, you can go to appointment after appointment after appointment um, that can meet the medical needs of a person, but actually the kind of more holistic needs of that human being in terms of like social and relational and psychological, sometimes they are not given the same attention, but actually they are the things that really can make the difference for someone. You know, it's about the combination of all of those different 
interventions and supports and opportunities that can ensure that people feel safe and cared for and looked after and welcomed. And, and I guess that's why we see you as created, because at the time there wasn't really anywhere um, that we could see if you were someone who was still experiencing homelessness, still using substances in the city centre, um, just to go and be and to spend time and to connect with other people and to like build skills and experiences and rediscover talents and ambitions and just link into things that you're interested in. And that was the whole basis of the programme, of the project, was about creating connection, creating belonging, creating space where people can come together and be. If you're living in accommodation where you're getting moved every couple of weeks or you don't really have a clear idea about what's going to come next and there's lots of other kind of health things that are going on or grief or loss or previous trauma like those things are actually really really difficult and we need to recognize that and it's about all the things that that person has experienced up until that point and we need to recognize that so that we can respond in a way that's actually meeting them where they're at and meeting their needs in a way that makes sense for them. Great, thanks Claire. And you know, Andy, listening to that, you're someone that is very often looking at the data and looking at the numbers. What's your kind of reflections listening? Yeah, I think it's quite sobering listening to that package because you get a sense of experience, I think, because a lot of things are put in place, eh, whether it's medication-assisted treatment or whether it's giving people a roof over their head, such as the the kind of the policies that were done during COVID-19 to get everybody eh, accommodated. And, but you can see that there's not a kind of uniform experience for everybody who's out there. And you can tell from those accounts that there are potential unintended consequences for some of these things that happen. So I think the numbers are hugely important in illustrating the size and the scale of the problem. But you absolutely need these more Claire's described it as kind of human accounts and absolutely I would I would extend that to these these kind of experiential accounts of how people are are living this crisis kind of day to day. Something as simple as providing a safe space, which might seem simple to everybody in the outside world, uh, but can be quite challenging even to put in place uh, these days to deal with the issue, has been such an important intervention for these people to have a safe space to to meet where there's no expectations or there's no rules or regulations. It's a safe space to meet them where they're at. We've had the proof of concept really with the van that ran in Glasgow in terms of you can run over those prevention site and the world won't end. And I think we've seen the same experience with hair and assisted treatment, where it's been it's been a big budget, uh, making sure every kind of box is ticked and everything is compliant with all legislation and regulation. And I think now we are now thinking about well, how can we learn from that and look at different models across Scotland. And interestingly, one of the things that that your evaluation found was that having drug users be more involved in the design of the service would help in terms of making that a service that they felt more ownership of and therefore maybe were able to get better therapeutic interventions and um, interactions. Uh, it was very clinically designed. It was designed in a way that met all the all the requirements of the Home Office licence that was done. But I think in hindsight and on reflection, uh, people thought some of that design was counterproductive to a therapeutic relationship. And I think that was both staff and patients relayed that. I think we need to also recognise, for, for us anyways within Simon Community, we're working with a lot of people who are experiencing some of the most harsh realities of poverty. 
So having access to money through opportunities or employment or ways of accessing actual cash is important, you know, and I think that having kind of the type of opportunities that exist within ops for people to come in and be able to get paid for working in a service, whether or not they're using drugs or not, I think is something that potentially we need to explore more. So if we're looking at kind of the root drivers behind whether it be substance use or unstable housing you know a lot of that comes down to poverty and inequality and social inequality so um, these are kind of big broad conversations that are important for us to have I think when it when we look at some of the solutions surrounding our drug crisis. I thought Claire about the the work that you're doing to open the Women's Centre here in Scotland when I was listening to both Candy and Tanya talking about the really dangerous situations that women can be in and just the absolutely shocking statistics around sexual violence. Do you want to say a little bit about what feels relevant here in Scotland and what the Women's Centre here will aim to do? I think that there's still a lot of similarities in terms of some of the experiences that women face um, here in Scotland, particularly women um, that we support who have sometimes had quite long, prolonged and recurring periods of homelessness and certainly have lots of really difficult life experiences that are kind of characterised by loss and grief and trauma. And, you know, one of the key traumas for a lot of women that we know is their loss of children and the kind of long-term impact that that has on their lives. And, you know, you're taught there about identity. Um, And so many of the women that we support are mums, but potentially don't have their children with them currently. That kind of loss of identity as a mum can be really difficult. Just because you don't have your children with you right now doesn't mean that you're no longer a mother. Yeah, I can really recognise the similarities for many women um, we know. Um, And I think that just sets the seen an importance as to why having services that are directly geared towards women is so important because so many services are designed without the needs and experiences of women as part of their design process and thinking. I think having a safe space for women to come that is designed by other women and is, has other women there who can recognise and understand some of the challenges they face in their lives can just be so powerful and healing. And just to come back to you a little bit on the numbers, Andy, because although um, drug deaths in Scotland are coming down in the last couple of years, slightly, it's still obviously far too high. But for women, that's not coming down as much and we're not seeing the same trends. Do you want to just say a little bit about how this might play out differently for different genders? I wouldn't say the numbers are coming down. I would say the numbers are levelling off after a prolonged period of kind of rapid increase from around 2014 to 2019 things have then have, or 2020 things have started to level off which is positive uh, but I don't think we could have continued at that rate of increase forever it had to level off at some point and it's levelled off at an internationally high rate so there's still a lot of work to be done underneath that kind of overall line there are various different subplots if you like as Claire's highlighted women are a particular focus of attention because of the kind of changing trends amongst women's drug deaths over the past 10 years something that we hadn't really seen up until then in terms of them being an increasing group because their needs are very particular in relation to men for example that allowed them to then start to invest more seriously from a financial point of view and also from a kind of policy point of view and I think since around 2020 we've seen lots of progress in terms of not necessarily new interventions but 
putting a bit more commitment into the interventions that we know are effective. You've got to balance that kind of progress in some ways with the fact that the figures are still exceptionally high, so that progress is perhaps still not quick enough. It might take time before we see that positive declining trend that people are looking for. And Claire, um, I think you also feel that we need to be bolder and braver. We're seeing really similar trends sort of three years ago of an intake, an, an up an uptick in the amount of people who were losing their lives to preventable and avoidable overdoses in our services. And that kind of drove us to really think quite differently in terms of our policy responses and organisations. So we have now moved into really kind of committing to an enhanced harm reduction policy across our residential services particularly. And what that does is... From a housing perspective, within a homelessness environment, it allows you to provide things like safe injecting equipment within residential services, um, enhanced harm reduction responses. And the most important thing within that is that it rebuilds trust. And I think this is something that we really need to understand and recognise, that for people who have been trying to navigate this system for sometimes decades, you know, that sense of trust in services and trusting that services are there to help has been impacted in quite a big way because they've tried to get support and maybe that's not been available or they've tried to get access for their mental health and that's not been available. Um, I think that what I would love to see is the real commitment to the inclusion of people with living experience being part of the discussion and being part of the policy responses that we see because ultimately It's people who are currently trying to navigate the system that know where the barriers are, know where the difficulties lie and can help us ultimately make things better. So it seems there's so much we could be doing. Having a much more human approach that accepts people as they are would be a start. And there's so much more besides this that we've not talked about. You can read more of our work on this topic and listen to longer versions of our interviews at thefert.scot or greatergovernhill.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram at greatergovernhill or theferret.scot or on our Twitter at govanhill underscore mag or ferretscot. And get info on how to become a member on our websites. Support our work and help us to do more of it. We'll be back in the final episode to look at the third key issue driving Scotland's health gap, the health and well-being of young and middle-aged men. And remember you can listen to all three episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to give us a review. It really does help.